Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, August the 9th. It's a significant day for some of our audience, although many people won't be familiar with uh, August 9th, what it's the anniversary of. It is International Day of the World's Indigenous People. Um, uh, it, uh, you can find it, uh, you can look it up on Wikipedia. And as I said, there's a, a special section in the United Nations. Lots of activity today on that front. Uh, the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, has put out a statement. Uh, celebrations from some American states, including New Mexico. Uh, the Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Gutierrez, has uh, put out a, a video celebration. I haven't heard anything from Joe Biden, but maybe he plans to talk later today. We're going to talk about uh, International Day of the of the world's indigenous peoples, and more broadly, uh, the indigenous the indigenous peoples front. With my guest today, Kate Finn, uh, she is um, the executive director of First Peoples Worldwide, and she's talking to me from just outside Los Angeles. Her group is uh, based in uh, in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, Kate, welcome, and um, happy happy. Happy International Day of the World's Indigenous People. Uh, are these days, are they important? Are they symbolic? Are they useful for you as an organizer of Indigenous peoples? You know, first, let me say thank you so much for raising the issues and for, for allowing me to be on the, on the show today. Um, and in direct response to your question, yes, I think it's important. I think it's important that we take the time to recognize this day was instituted in the 80s, uh, the early 80s, when there was a working group on indigenous peoples at the United Nations. And there was a fierce deliberation uh, behind the scenes on the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which wasn't adopted until 2007. So, you know, it really is a good day to recognize all of the work that's been done at the international level to elevate uh, indigenous leaders. And I think it's important that we do take the time to look around us and see where uh, indigenous solutions are spreading from year to year. Well, I'm thrilled you're on the show, Kate. I do want to get on to talking about First Peoples Worldwide, your group, your coalition. But before we start, maybe you want to have a shot at defining what an indigenous people or an indigenous person is. It's becoming an increasingly popular, perhaps even fashionable term. What in your mind is an indigenous people? You know, I think that list that you just showed, uh, the UN definition that again came from reports that came out of and uh, just before the 80s, really is the guiding definition of who are indigenous peoples, because there's so many different pieces and parts. You know, it's a connection to the land, a connection to culture, um, it's the process of, of colonization that's taken over um, and really, um, you know, decimated a lot of cultures over time. But there's a number of different 
uh, touch points in that definition that I think are really, really important. And probably the the north star of all of them, if you will, would be um, self determination and the ability to self identify as part of uh, an indigenous group. But all peoples historically uh, move. I mean, no no people is ever connected with any particular land forever. So what distinguishes, say, I don't know, indigenous people from farmers in Dakota or Colorado who have been there two, three, four hundred years? You know, I think these are important questions, and this is why those definitional points through the UN are really important. And different countries, of course, recognize indigenous peoples differently. In the United States, of course, there are the federally recognized tribes that are given recognition by the federal government, but there's a number of tribes and indigenous peoples that were not or did not want to be recognized by the federal government, but are indeed indigenous. Um, so, you know, there really is there a base in... Um, societies that were present prior to colonization, a tie to the land that goes uh, really since time immemorial. Uh, and, and those ties, the economies and peoples and cultures that existed prior to colonization are those that define indigenous peoples. Uh, even though despite, as you said, the process of colonization has moved indigenous peoples and indigenous governments from place to place, there is that tie, that culture um, and those traditions that that are distinct. Yeah, we've done a number of shows about this. Uh, we did one, for example, with uh, Margaret Jacobs, uh, who has a history of indigenous peoples after 100 winters in search of reconciliation on American stolen lands. We also did a, a conversation with Nicole Eustace, who won Pulitzer Prize last year, for her book, Covered with Night, a story of murder and indigenous justice in early America. Uh, I mentioned in the beginning, uh, Kate, that I hadn't heard anything from Joe Biden uh, on Indigenous Day of the World's, uh, an International Day of the World's Indigenous Peoples. I, you know, of course, he's a busy man. Do you think the Americans are less interested in the idea, American government at least, less interested in the idea of indigenous people's rights as, for example, its neighbor Canada. Uh, Trudeau today put out a statement about it. You know, I think that's an interesting question, and I think it really goes back to what uh, we had started talking about in terms of colonization and what, you know, I said there's really no nation state in the world that uh, gives indigenous peoples the, the rights and the platform uh, that they that they could have just um, if it weren't for colonization. So while Canada and the United States do a good job, um, you know, I think what we really look for at the UN and the reason that the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was so important is because it set a high mark, an international mark for recognition of Indigenous peoples. So. Uh, you know, where countries fall, what they recognize, what they don't is one thing, but the thing that's true, the thing that is wonderful to recognize, especially uh, today when we're recognizing Indigenous women, is the ways that Indigenous women and Indigenous peoples have carried forward their traditions, their economies, their traditional ecological knowledge, 
uh, despite colonization. And in fact, in a lot of countries, um, those solutions are are really being elevated as we all look at challenges that are pressing all of us, like climate change um, and oh. the transition to a green economy. I want to get to climate change, particularly the bill that's in the process of being passed. But let's just talk a little bit, of, um, Kate, about First Peoples Worldwide. Uh, I know you're also involved in something uh, called the uh, Surge Coalition. So perhaps you might talk a little bit about the politics of your organization and the network that you're building through the Surge Coalition. Absolutely. So it's just really been my honor to work with folks to build this coalition uh, from the ground up. And it's a core group of, of global organizations, ourselves at First Peoples Worldwide, Cultural uh, Survival, Batani Fund, Earthworks, and Society for Threatened Peoples. And really, we came together about 18 months ago or so uh, because we were all noticing in our work, in the corners of work that we were doing, that this transition to the so-called green economy, all the solutions to climate change were impacting indigenous peoples in negative ways. And we could together stand to show the ways that that was happening. And that's why we formed a coalition. And each one of the organizations brings a particular solution set, a particular experience. Um, but the things that we're united on are really that uh, indigenous leadership is important for um, if we're really going to have a just transition to a green economy. Uh, indigenous solutions are key to solving for climate change. Um, and really what we want to forward through our coalition is the need for free prior and informed consent every time there's an impact on indigenous lands, territories, and resources. Kate, uh, a lot of people in the US are celebrating Biden's so-called historic climate bill. Uh, there are those, though, that believe that the climate bill will do more harm than good. Are you in that camp? Are you suspicious of this initiative from Biden? Uh, as, as, as the executive uh, director of First Peoples Worldwide, and uh, as a member of the Surge Coalition, are uh, the, uh, indig uh, the, the politics of indigenous uh, peoples, are they, do you think, at odds in some ways with, with Biden's uh, environmental initiative, his bill? You know, what I'm really looking for from the administration, what I'm really looking for from uh, political leaders around the world is explicit recognition of the rights of indigenous peoples in any of their climate actions. So that needs to uh, be, I think, more forward uh, in terms of this particular climate bill, uh, but really in legislation and political actions around the world. Because uh, where there is fast tracking of regulatory policies, um, where there are quick moves, to incentivize uh, green technologies such as electric vehicles um, and uh, batteries, lithium batteries and things like that, we know that there will be a rush towards mining, metals and minerals mining that's necessary for those technologies. And when there's a rush, generally indigenous people's perspectives and their rights are not considered. So what I'm really looking forward um, or looking for uh, in political and regulatory regimes is this re response to uh, include free prior and informed consent. Lots of pieces on this, a uh, piece about 
one indigenous group who believed that their sacred sites are more important than a lithium mine. You mentioned lithium as essential for the creation of batteries. Uh, lots of stuff in Guatemala, even in Russia, uh, nickel mining, indigenous communities in Russia searching uh, one piece for avenues of justice. You know, I, I, I understand the argument, Kate, and I guess in a way I'm sympathetic, but um, isn't the climate crisis so existential that really it trumps any concerns about the land? If we can indeed save global warming, then maybe these are some of the things we're simply going to have to pay in the short term, at least. How, how would you respond to that critique? You know, I would agree that we're at a, a point in human history where we have an opportunity for change. And the climate crisis really does affect all of us. It is something that we all need to work to together. But I think if we continue um, through legal processes, through political processes, regulatory, um, and otherwise to ignore indigenous peoples, then in fact, all we are doing is replicating processes that are broken. Um, we will continue to magnify inequities when it comes to indigenous peoples. Um, and I, I don't think we're creating a better world in the end. So what I do think we need to do is listen to the people who've been living on the land. These are folks who can tell you when the permafrost is melting. They can tell you when infrastructure is going to fall through the eyes. They can tell you when tailings dams are leaching in different ways because of the humidity in the air. They can tell you, you know, when you live on a grid and your community, when there's an energy disruption and your community is the first community to have your energy removed and the last community to have that energy restored, they've come up with some solutions for that. So in a world where all of us are going to face um, hardship due to climate change, you know, these are solutions that need to be raised. And I think the way forward with climate change, the way forward uh, into a green economy is to really make sure that it is a just transition by including equal attention to people and planet. And I think um, this is the moment of opportunity to do that in the right way. Uh, is there any of this kind of language in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, Biden's historic climate bill? Does he even acknowledge the rights or language of indigenous people? Or are you, once again, essentially being trampled on, so to speak? I haven't had a chance to read through the uh, Inflation Act, so I wouldn't be able to comment on that. You would have heard, Kate, you're, you, it's your business. So I assume you have some sense of, um, I, I have some sense of whether or not he bought in at least to your worldview, not yours personally, but First Peoples Worldwide and Surge Coalition. Sorry, go on. What I, well, I, I will say what I do know is that the incentives towards EVs, the incentives towards green technologies are incentives towards more mining of, of these critical me uh, metals and minerals. And so that in and of itself, uh, when these businesses are incentivized to act quickly, uh, they generally, if, if pa the past is an indicator, will run roughshod over free prior and informed consent. And I do think what is important that the U.S. government do is make sure that there are regulatory 
um, backstops to include Indigenous peoples and integrate Indigenous perspectives into the regulatory regime. And my understanding, and those haven't in the past uh, been robust enough to really measure up to free prior and informed consent. What's your take on Margaret Jacobs' argument uh, about giving land back? I know in her book, um, uh, After 100 Winters, she talks about some initiatives to give land back to indigenous people. Uh, I think it was in Nebraska, one of the Midwestern states. I haven't been able to make it all the way through that book, but I do think that land back is an incredibly important conversation that this country in particular is having. You know, uh, the economy that we have was built on uh, stolen land. And in fact, uh, the reason that many local indigenous economies uh, have a hard time thriving is because they were removed from their land, they were removed from their leadership, um, and they do not and still do not always have the means to move forward towards towards thriving, although that is changing. So I think that this is an incredibly important conversation to talk about what it means to elevate indigenous leadership, to elevate solutions to climate change, and to have a really hard but necessary conversation um, about the foundations of, of our economy and our government. Interesting you mentioned government. Um... We did a show last year with the NYU uh, sociologist David Stasevage. He has a new book out, The Decline and Rise of Democracy, A Global History from Antiquity to Today. And he suggests that many West historians of, where, of the West and of the settling of the United States have got it wrong that the idea of bringing democracy to America was a mistake or a historical misunderstanding and that many of the indigenous peoples of North America were practicing forms of democracy before the Europeans showed up. Do you think there are some practices of government, some cultural practices, some practices associated, for example, with women's rights that, quote unquote, uh, European Americans can learn from indigenous Americans? You know, I do think at my core, whether it be government or economy or relationship in general, indigenous peoples have uh, knowledge, uh, just traditional ecological knowledge that, that indigenous peoples have that's been lost and suppressed, and that needs to be elevated. And I think, um, you know, our work at First Peoples Worldwide is to look at corporate accountability to the rights of indigenous peoples and to rethink and to understand what uh, a thriving economic uh, framework is for indigenous peoples. So I, you know, really look a lot to the works of people like Carol Ann Hilton and in Indigenomics, the ways that indigenous values form design principles that create sustainable economies and sustainable economies for all of us, the ways that indigenous leadership and governance can ensure um, sustainability again, but true well-being, wealth and well-being as, as tied together. And I think, you know, the principles that she sets forward are principles uh, that leaders should really take to heart. It's definitely an interesting conversation as it, so to speak, brews. We had George Monbiot, very influential English uh, environmental writer, journalist on the show, just won the Orwell Prize for journalism for this year. 
He has a new book out, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, uh, encouraging us to rethink our relationship to the soil. I'm not sure how much he writes about indigenous peoples or cultures, but I'm assuming that the there's a lot of potential for alliance between groups like yours, groups of indigenous peoples around the world, and the regenerative economics of people like George Monbiot and even Kate Raworth, the, uh, the, the author of Donut Economics. Yeah, you know, it is, it's a principle, these economic principles around, as you said, regenerative, um, what is, you know, regenerative agricultural, but regenerative, regenerative economies, uh, cyclical economies, these things are um, found in a lot of indigenous, indigenous worldviews, and they're found, and really the core is relationship. You know, the core for indigenous peoples, oftentimes, you know, a, a shared indigenous value is, is relationship, relationship to each other, relationship to our non-human relatives, um, relationship to the earth, relationship to the climate. And so that, that core principle of relationship is what can bring everyone back to a different economic start and can create a cycle um, of well-being. And I would point to uh, a wonderful, you know, an expert in this area, to Vanessa Roanhorse, who recently wrote an article uh, called Radical Economics uh, about building an economy that allows indigenous people to simply be unapologetically indigenous. Um, and builds on the work of Caroline and Caroline Hilton and others as well about creating um, what wealth and well-being, not only creating it, but providing an ecosystem of success for indigenous peoples. Okay, do you think we also need to rethink traditional geography? We did a, a show a few months ago with an environmental historian, Bathsheba DeMuth, on the environmental history of the Bering Strait. She has an interesting book out, Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Strait, which really unites North America and Siberia, um, particularly in terms of indigenous peoples. And of course, it was the bridge, quite literally, sometimes between Siberia and North America. Does uh, thinking in, in the context of indigenous peoples require us to rethink geography? I think it does. I think it requires us to rethink a lot of the things we were taught in school, particularly in the United States. It requires us to rethink borders. It requires us to rethink what is a traditional territory for indigenous peoples. Um, and again, what is my relationship to this land? What are the indigenous people's relationship to the land that, they're, that I myself or another person are, is sitting on? Um, I do think it requires us to recognize um, how um, borders were imposed uh, in many cases on indigenous peoples uh, in, in most of the world. And, and that imposition in and of itself is colonial um, and, and it remains, you know, it remains in a lot of legal and regulatory processes and, and it does little to actually elevate the kind of thinking, the creativity uh, and ingenuity necessary to solve for these huge global, global issues. As a political organizer, Kate, again, you don't need me to tell you that indigenous peoples were, of course, uh, 
catastrophic, tragic casualties of the process of colonialization, but they weren't alone. You had African-Americans, many respects, Hispanic-Americans. Are you, again, building bridges, say, between networks of indigenous peoples and African-American organizations who were brought to this continent as slaves, or even Hispanic-Americans who certainly have been here longer than some of the other Europeans? Yeah, I think it's important in this conversation that we are having today, but also nationally, that we recognize all of the communities that live here and how they came here and what it is that we can all do to repair our national relationship with those communities um, that have been um, underserved and have been truly um, put down in a lot of ways and, and and colonize. So I think it's Im- imperative that we have this national discourse and that we talk about it throughout all of these movements uh, to raise up people in every community um, and also in recognition of, of the ways that our histories might be different, but uh, we share common challenges in the present uh, that, that we can speak to with a number of folks. It's certainly an interesting day, uh, International Day of the World's Indigenous Peoples today. It's a happy, happy International Day, uh, Kate. Um, what would you say to people listening or watching and thinking, this is kind of cool, I'm sympathetic, but I'm white, I've got nothing to do with Indigenous peoples. How can non-Indigenous peoples participate in this? I'm really glad you asked the question. You know, there's so many ways to step in. There's so many ways to get involved. And really, you know, it comes back to our conversation about land back. I think the first step is to understand where you are, on whose land are you living? Who lived there? Uh, What indigenous peoples were there prior to colonization? Um, and, and learn about that land. And then I think learn about those peoples in modernity. Uh, they're still there. There's indigenous peoples. We're, we're all over the United States. So where are indigenous peoples now and in your community? What organizations are there? What political leverage do they have? Um, what is it that the, the tribes and indigenous leaders are really prioritizing in your community, in your place, uh, in your work, where it is that you work, and to take up and uplift those priorities as an ally? We've already mentioned Margaret Jacobs' excellent book uh, on um, what After 100 Winters. We've done a number of other books, Tanya Talaga, a Canadian indigenous activist, all Our Relations also did an interesting book with Mark Lee Gardner uh, on the history of um, indigenous peoples in America, The Earth is All That Lasts. Do you have any other reading suggestions, Kate, on books that you think might help people make sense of what's happened and the challenges and opportunities of networks like yours of First Peoples Worldwide? You know, like I said, so our work is really uniquely at the intersection of business law and finance. And so Indigenomics is a great way for people. Yeah, it sounds like a great book. I have to admit, uh, sorry to interrupt. I have to admit, I I didn't know the book. Who's the author again of Indigenomics? Carol Ann Hilton. We'll have to get her on the show. Sounds very interesting. Where is she based? Uh, In Canada. And very, very briefly, Kate, what, what what exactly is Indigenomics? So it's really looking at, um, again, reassessing the 
the um, basics and the, the basic design principles of capitalism and understanding where they're out of alignment with indigenous values, but how it's not that indigenous peoples are anti-economics or anti-making money or anti-finance. It's just that it's built on different values. And in fact, when folks understand the values alignment with indigenous peoples, um, there's some really neat building that we can do together to create better economies for all of us. It's also about unlocking indigenous solutions, un unlocking indigenous leadership um, and understanding the solutions that really can move economies forward.